Welcome to Vernacular Verbose Jethro Tull Podcast, our Christmas episode where we're going to be taking a look at the Jethro Tull Christmas album released in 2003. My name's Joey Vetter. My name's Eugene Manco. If you're a fan of the podcast and are feeling generous, you can donate to us on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. Any contributions will go right back into the production of the podcast by helping us cover our editing costs. Again, that's ko-fi.com slash vernacular verbose. Also, before we start, I want to mention that we're soliciting uh, listener feedback for kind of a future mailbag episode. That's an idea that we have uh, that we're doing where we would kind of take a look at any questions that you guys have, any specific discussion topics that we've never talked about on the podcast before that you'd be interested in hearing us talk about, as well as some other things. You can find that on all of our social media. So on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that, you may have to scroll down a little bit to find the link, but uh, there's a Google form up there where you can submit some stuff to us for us to look at for a future episode. And we also have some optional survey questions on there about uh, things that you guys may be interested in, kind of ideas for the future of the podcast after we're finished with the albums, things like that. So if you're interested, please take a look at our social media to find that Google form and let us know what you think. So for our Christmas episode today, uh, before we start talking about the album itself, just in the spirit of Christmas, I'd like Eugene, uh, you know, you and I, grew up in sort of relatively different cultures in different parts of the world. Oh, yes. So very much so. I'm curious to hear about, uh, you know, what was Christmas like for you growing up and what is Christmas like for you now? Well, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Generally, Christmas growing up for me was non-existent because um, as some of you probably know, in the Eastern Europe, uh, in Ukraine, the Orthodox Christmas is mostly celebrated, mm-hmm. and the Orthodox Christmas fa- falls on January 6th and 7th. The Christmas Eve is January the 6th, because of the, it's the old calendar. And it was very much just a religious holiday. And the main holiday was the New Year, and still is. The New Year's Eve is the main celebration that's happening around these places. Uh, however, these days, we here in Ukraine have two bank holidays, Christmas on the 25th of December and Christmas on the 6th of January, uh, b- because we're accommodating both the Catholic and the Orthodox communities. Uh, I say Catholic because that's the main community in Ukraine that celebrates Christmas on the 25th of December. There's not many Protestant Uh, communities here and while there's of course a lot of um, Christmas decor Christmas music and all of that spilling into the new year it still doesn't really feel like a religious holiday well I'm sure it doesn't really feel like a religious holiday around the world anymore Uh, but Kind of what I'm saying is this is all a big period of winter festivities with the new year at the top and the two Christmases around the sides. Most of the time, yeah, the presents that people normally give to each other on Christmas in the western part of the world, like Boxing Day and all that, that happens on the new on the new year here. And 
yeah, I didn't really pay much attention to the to the Orthodox Christmas. We we didn't really celebrate it in our house, or did it in a very minor way, just an as an acknowledgement. But the New Year, yeah, that was that was a big deal, kind of. That that the New Year was when I I as a kid was allowed to stay well past my bedtime. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> just go to sleep whenever I want. That was magic. <laughs> and yeah, that that's still the, the the time of the year when we convene with friends and sit through the night play games, listen to music, drink stuff, and generally have a good time. So forgive my ignorance. So in Ukraine, is there no opening presents in the morning around the tree? No, I, I will say in some families that that happens uh, on January the 1st. Okay. And we did have that when I was a kid. But the, these days we don't really, because we meet with relatives, the Personally, me and my wife, we meet with our relatives on the New Year's Eve. We just exchange presents on that day, and we may put put them under the the new the Christmas tree, as it were, to be discovered immediately. But yeah, the the sort of magic ritual of discovering a present in the morning, the around sort of our circle that's largely gone i think i think some some of the people who have kids they will they will probably do that so what about santa is santa not a thing in ukraine no santa is very much a thing there's lots of santas uh, strolling around the streets santa um has largely well back in the days of the soviet union there was no santa mm. but there was father frost yeah just communist santa was a <laughs> Yeah, uh, was a very similar figure, but dressed a little bit different, uh, most of the time wearing blue rather than red, accompanied by a girl, and, well, a less jolly and sort of a little bit more imposing figure. Mm -hmm. he, that, that character would never let anyone sit in their lap, you know what I mean? <laughs> and these days it just kind of amalgamated into one character who is both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure. Well, wh when I was a kid, there was sort of a thing when uh, one of my parents would dress up as Grandfather Frost <laughs> and kind of pre pretend to be them and come in at, at night and so on. I was a little bit scared of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't really know how how the kids today think about th th this character. But uh -huh. there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Grandfather Frost, in, especially in Russian, uh, sounds extremely hilarious for an English speaker because uh, the name is Dead Moroz, <laughs> which is like, it's dead and morose <laughs> at the same time. But no, he, was, he wasn't morose at all. So do they I mean do they believe in the whole myth of Santa bringing the presents and stuff? Yeah, it? of course, okay. of course. My earliest memories, I kind of sussed it. That guy was my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't really remember myself believing into Grandfather Frost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what about you? I think I had, I mean, just a pretty average American Christmas upbringing mm -hmm. where I mean, the kind of tradition that we did was uh, my grandparents, when I grew up, they grew, uh, they lived on the same street as me. And so I, I went over there several times a week, usually. 
And our kind of tradition was that we would all eat together at my grandparents' house on Christmas Eve and then open some presents there. And then the next morning, me and my parents would open presents at our house and then we'd go over to our grandparents again and have Christmas Day dinner. Mm. But I mean, you know, I like every other kid, it was a magical thing for me. I The main thing that I remember is like TV specials, you know, like the Grinch, you uh-huh. sell Christmas and that kind of thing, I think. I don't really know if those are, if that's like a thing anymore, if Christmas TV specials, because I mean, you know, kids today have streaming where, you know, I guess in, in theory, it's better because they have like a wider selection available at their fingertips. They can watch whatever they want, whenever they want. But I feel like it kind of takes some of the curiosity out of it. Because for us, it was like, you know, I mean, we just watched what was on the cartoon channels. And, mm-hmm. you know, Christmas was like the one time of the year where suddenly everything was different. Like it was all Christmas specials that you would never see any other time of the year. And I feel like that's kind of gone now. If you can just watch Christmas stuff like any day you want at the snap of your fingers. Yeah, I know what you mean. However, there's, there's still, you know, you don't really want Christmas content. Sure. Other than... during that period and even though it's streaming I find myself very much looking forward to when it's available the Mm. Doctor Who Christmas special Uh. and saving that to watch somewhere around the winter festivities when I'll be taking a vacation and just watching that but we you know I left cookies out for Santa Uh you know my dad would go outside and he would throw rocks on my the roof of my bedroom to make it sound like there's reindeer on the ceiling and or on the roof and that kind of thing oh that's sweet and uh yeah i i mean in retrospect i don't know how ethical it is to make (laughs) kids believe in this totally non-existent thing but i mean whatever it's tradition oh you know there's it makes the world you know uh, a more wonderful place wonderful as in full of wonder if you uh, i know you're not a massive terry pratchett fan like uh, like i am but um if you ever get the chance to see hogfather the tv movie mm. based on terry pratchett's book hogfather it's a christmas movie basically mm-hmm. and there's a lot in it about belief and how belief shapes the world so I think that that part is part of the Christmas magic. Everyone pretending at the same time, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of funny. I can identify with your story about recognizing uh, the person who was playing Santa or whatever. Because uh-huh. I grew up in a church setting and I, would, I went to like nursery and things like that in a local church. And I remember one time they would always have mascots come through for holidays and stuff. And they had, you know, they would bring the Easter bunny on Easter, which completely terrified me for many, many years. <laughs> but they would also bring Santa, which was obviously always a huge deal, like to be able to meet a larger than life figure like Santa. Uh-huh. And uh, there was one guy in this church who I'll just say he fits the profile of Santa very easily. And so uh, he had a very distinctive voice also. And so, you know, you would go in to meet Santa, and as soon as he started talking, you just thought like, oh, this is that guy. <laughs> like, this isn't Santa. And, uh, you know, amazingly, we you know we still weren't able to figure out, even back then, that that was kind of the, the card being pulled from the deck. But uh, still, that was that's kind of a similar thing. But I have to say today that uh, Christmas kind of bugs me <laughs> today. It's, uh, to me, I mean, Christmas to me today just means like cold weather and Christmas music every single place you go. Mm-hmm. And especially, uh, 
living in Japan, the Japanese go hard for Christmas. They love Christmas. It's crazy. <laughs> but obviously, it's kind of a weird thing because obviously here it's a completely cultural uh, observance. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a holiday. It's not a public holiday. Um, there's no real, uh, you know, religious meaning behind it. And I mean, in the in the U.S. and the West, that's happening too. I mean, Christmas is mostly a secular holiday now. But mm-hmm. still, I mean, in Japan, like, there's really no, you know, religious, uh, you know, meaning or ideology behind it. And uh, their idea of what Christmas is in other countries is quite warped here, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> So, for example, it's actually custom on Christmas Day to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken in Japan, uh-huh. <laughs> which uh, was unbelievable to me. I mean, it's, it's hilarious to every American, but like the reason they do that is because they really think that's what people do in other countries on Christmas. Uh-huh. You know, I, I go to my barber and I tell them I'm going home to America for Christmas, and they say, oh, are you going to eat KFC with your family? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but that's, I mean, if I can leave my apartment right now and I can go down the block to KFC and I guarantee you right now there's people putting in their reservations for a bucket of KFC on Christmas. It's so strange. <laughs> Fantastic. Is that what the kind of the turkey dinner morphed into in in people's minds? I don't know because I, I don't know where it came from. But the thing that's weird from an American perspective is, of course, we're used to Thanksgiving coming in between Halloween and mm-hmm. Christmas. But of course, yeah. I mean, there's no Thanksgiving anywhere else. So in Japan, like as soon as it's November 1st, like there's Christmas everywhere. Like all like mm-hmm. all the lights are up, all the music is up. So it's a huge deal. And it's uh, it's like a couple's day in Christmas. It's not really like a family day uh, for Japan. But yeah, the only holiday of the year I like is Halloween. That's the only one that I get excited for. Christmas is kind of uh-huh. uh, old hat for me. Yeah, especially because you don't have... Halloween music blasting around since August. <laughs> yeah, although you know, I'm telling you, every year it's going further and further back. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, but also, what is Halloween music? You don't really get, you know, traditional. What What would people play? Bauhaus. <laughs> yeah, you can find all the Halloween playlists online, but I think most shopping malls yeah. aren't going to play them. Yeah, exactly. While with Christmas, it's you know. And so, of course, somebody else who is celebrating Christmas at least in 2003, was Jethro Tull. Yes, and speaking of Christmas music. So, I'm going to be honest, this was not an album that I really wanted to talk about, but we have to do it because, of course, <laughs> believe it or not, this is officially a Jethro Tull studio album. This is the 21st Tull album. So, we, we felt like it made sense to, you know, pick this one out, mm-hmm. you know, out of the timeline and kind of do it now for a Christmas episode out of order. Yeah, I must say, when I began listening to it this week which is a month ahead yet of, of christmas at time of recording i first felt a little bit annoyed just because it kind of felt like a shopping mall beginning to to play christmas music on the <laughs> on the first of november yeah but it sort of grew on me over over this week i personally don't think of it as a proper sort of just hotel studio album to me it's more novelty still but there's a lot of good things to be to be said about it nevertheless i will say that i was i found this a bit more interesting than i was expecting it to be Mm -hmm. but in general i mean i think you and i probably agree on this the idea of a christmas album especially for a band like this is pretty off-putting to me 
just because I feel like when you're at the point where you're selling Christmas albums, it's it's way past your time to pasture, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the way that I view it. Because, I mean, the reason that these albums are made, it's not really for music's sake, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's to move units in a particular season of the year, which to me is uh, doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth. That's true. But at the same time, they made a pretty good effort and unlike some other bands there were songs from Jethro Tull catalog that fit seamlessly into the concept of the of the Christmas album Mm -hmm. you know I know uh, there was something I read that Ian said I don't remember where this was but he said that when he first kind of received the idea of doing an album which the, mm-hmm. the idea came from the label which i think is not surprising he initially was kind of he like immediately said no instinctually but then he kind of thought about it and he thought that you know there was a way that he could do it uh, that mm-hmm. made sense so i mean at least in that regard i mean you know ian wasn't going to do it unless he felt like there was a reason to do it so yeah and un- unless he felt like he could do something unique which they actually did mm. when you listen to it without paying much attention it could serve as perfectly nice background music but if you pay attention to what they're doing and kind of examine what they're doing with the material it's actually pretty interesting to to think about because there's not one single approach on the entire album even though the album sounds very cohesive because obviously it was all recorded at the same time by mostly the same band which is an interesting point regarding the the musicians on this album i think yeah when it comes to the people who played on this album this was something that was really surprising to me when i actually looked at the (laughs) liner notes for a couple of reasons so you know we're kind of jumping ahead in time here the the last album we put out was crest of an ave so we're jumping ahead you know some 15 years or so yeah we're putting this one out of order because we want it to be the christmas episode Mm -hmm. if anyone is wondering (laughs) so the lineup at this time was Ian Anderson on vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, Martin Barr on electric guitar, Jonathan Noyce on bass guitar, Andrew Giddings on keyboards, and Doan Perry on drums. So that was Jethro Tull at this time. But what's interesting about this album, James Duncan, who is Ian Anderson's son, plays drums on about half of the album, about seven tracks. Yeah. Dave Pegg actually comes back and plays bass on two tracks, and I think mandolin on another track. And this was the single biggest surprise to me, Andrew Giddings plays bass on seven tracks. Like, basically <laughs> half of the album is Andrew Giddings playing bass, which I had no clue about that. Yeah, that that's pretty fascinating. And I remember, so I read the liner notes for this album, and uh, Ian mentions that he was working on a solo album at this time, which I guess was Rupee's Dance, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, a lot of this album was kind of recorded separately, like in, in separate studios with, you know, like just Andrew Giddings in his studio with Martin and then somebody else somewhere else. So it was kind of like, uh, geographically, it was kind of like a hodgepodge to put it all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's all mixed pretty well, mm-hmm. considering the, the way it was done. I think the mixing and the recording on this album is outstanding. The Toll website also says about this album that it was, quote, an unexpected critical and commercial success, <laughs> which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, b- because when, when you're doing a Christmas album, you, you will be expecting some kind of backlash, mm-hmm. some kind of criticism as, yeah, that's another bunch of old guys trying to cash in yeah. Well, I'll mention, so you you kind of, you talked about how you could view some of this album as background music. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I view the entire album as that, but there are quite a few tracks on here that to me 
they just kind of come across as easy listening Christmas. I mean, it's mixed in such a way that the entire album, I think, could well be played in a supermarket yeah. around Christmas time. And I wouldn't mind that one bit. Mm. <laughs> because I think of all the Christmas albums I've heard, this is the best Christmas album mm. <laughs> in existence. Which may not be a very high bar. Yeah. But still, you know, if I have to choose something that's thematically Christmassy and play that uh, to, a, to a gathering of people for whatever reason, uh, this will be one of my first choices. I actually mm. did that. There was a Christmas celebration I was part in several years ago. And on my playlist, there was the Jethro Tull Christmas album. There was uh, the Jethro Tull string quartets, which I think work in much the same way. And some other stuff as well. But yeah, I wouldn't mind many of uh, public places swapping their Christmas playlists for this. Mm -hmm. Do you feel anything about the, the front cover? No. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty uninspiring as front covers go. I actually quite like the image a lot, uh -huh. but I'd have one problem with it, which I think is pretty obvious, which is the, the little Ian in the corner, mm -hmm. which I think just looks ridiculous. Yeah, it's very obviously the, a cutout from the... Well, it's the same image used on the cover for Rupees Dance. Yeah. And I think it made sense to them to kind of connect the two albums mm -hmm. in a way, because they do sound a little bit similar, especially in the way they are recorded, maybe not, not in terms of content. But they are sort of very much companion albums. And in this case, because Rupi's Dance is uh, an original work start to finish, the Jethro Tull Christmas album feels like the companion to it rather than the other way around. Mm. The Little Ian, it makes me think of, I don't know if any of our listeners will know what I'm talking about here, but so when Drake put out his album Views a couple of years ago, he had he did kind of a similar thing on the album cover where the the broader album cover was this beautiful shot of the um the tower in toronto i think that's the cn tower i think mm -hmm. um this very moody shot of the tower close up with like storm clouds behind it but then at the very top of the tower there was this tiny little cutout of drake sitting on top of the tower like this little mini drake sitting on the tower <laughs> And it just ruined the whole image for me. It just looks so ridiculous and funny. And to me, it's like the same thing here. Where, to me, this painting or whatever it is, is beautiful. And I think it actually fits Toll really well. Uh -huh. Because, you know, there's things about Toll that can work really well in this context. And I don't even mean just musically. I mean, just like the visuals and the atmosphere that Jethro Toll uh, brings up as, as musicians. I think you can craft kind of like a wintry medieval type feeling even like a home type mm -hmm. feeling you know which i think is exactly what this cover does um but the little ian is uh is too much <laughs> yeah i don't think the painting is bad it, it, it's a good it's a nice image but i just don't don't feel it's special enough to be a cover there's an element of it lacks an element of uh, some extra element of design some extra idea some extra story in it mm -hmm. because this way is just picture that you could find hanging somewhere just an element of decor mm -hmm. rather than part of the story which kind of kind of colors the the experience of listening to to this album as background music the the, the cover art for it is very much a background picture yeah the back cover is pretty terrible <laughs> 
I don't know if you've seen that. But uh, it's just kind of like a reef background that it looks like you could find off Google with like a kind of a poor photo of the band like pasted above it with the track listing. Uh-huh. I th- Yeah, I think I saw it because I... I should have a CD somewhere, or I think my dad has that CD, but I don't really recall it. The cover pictures I have currently are from the issue of this album, paired with uh, Christmas at Satan Brides, mm-hmm. the, the live performance from 2008, and yeah. the back cover is different, and it's not very good either. Track one, birthday card at Christmas. Got a birthday card at Christmas and made me think of Jesus Christ So this is one of the few new compositions on the disc, if I'm Mm -hmm. not mistaken. Yes. This was written about Ian's daughter, which he mentioned somewhere, because uh, his daughter was born close to Christmas, which is, you know, kind of a sucky situation for any kid to be in. Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of what inspired this. I have to say, you know, I I actually think this song is not that bad. I think, Mm -hmm. in general, it kind of actually does feel like old toll, whatever you consider old toll. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the part that makes me a little iffy about it is just that it's a really bright song, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And almost to the point where it, it almost kind of sounds like I'm listening to like contemporary radio or something. <laughs> it's kind of the feeling that it gives me. I feel like a lot of this album was mixed thinking of radio. Yeah. Because if we compare the recordings on this album of the songs um, that have been quote-unquote updated, we'll find that they're much brighter with much clearer vocals and I think it was made thinking of radio play, thinking of the possibility of this being played in a public space, yeah. which I don't know if it ever was. I like this song. Um, I, I don't have really much analysis to throw at it, but listening to this back-to-back with like Rupi's Dance, it feels a little bit similar to Ian's solo work from the same period, which is completely unsurprising. But I feel like it would have sounded more, a little bit more like Jethro Tull if it weren't for the strummy acoustic guitar yeah. in, in the center of the mix. That one kind of takes something away from me. Yeah, I can see that. I think that's kind of where some of my comments come about like contemporary mm-hmm. radio, because it, it very much does sound like a very like pop rock type guitar part, I think. Yeah, because uh, you will add acoustic guitar to basically any song where you would like to have more brightness more definition more rhythmic definition but you would normally mix that mix that down to the point of being barely audible but still contributing that a little that little percussive element little high end mm-hmm. well here it's very clear that they wanted it to still be audible and i i don't know how i feel about that one the only other musical thing I have to add is just the drum part for this is actually kind of cool. Mm-hmm. This is Doan Perry, I believe, on this one. And there's a lot of fast 16th rhythms, which I think are not super common in a lot of Toll stuff. So uh-huh. you know, I've mentioned before that because of when Doan came into the band and just the popularity of the band at the time, I feel like he didn't really get a chance to kind of leave a big imprint on kind of the legacy of Toll drumming. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool for me. So by the way, this is the first time I've ever listened to this entire album from front to back. So it was kind of a new uh-huh. experience for me. So to be able to actually hear some like original, you know, Doan parts was kind of interesting for me. Mm-hmm. It's a high energy track, yeah. as Tal will do on many albums. We've already noticed that. And rhythmically, again, I'm comparing this to Rupi's Dance. Uh, if we listen to Kelly Andrew Shade, which is the opening track on Rupi's Dance, there is 
kind of a similarity in the delivery and that's uh, it's a high energy track driven by an acoustic guitar with a fast rhythm behind it and i think that's exploring a similar idea but it's very different i'm, I'm not saying the, these two songs are similar at all they mm. just serve the same purpose on the record one thing i will say too not just for this song but this whole album most of this album at least so for whatever uh you know the vocal issue with ian which I really don't have a lot to add on that. I know that's kind of maybe one of the Holy Trinity topics to make any Tull fan <laughs> fly into a flaming rage and argue with strangers for hours on the internet over. Um, I don't really have a lot to add to that. But I will say that at least on this album at this time, he was still doing pretty well, I think, you know, on, on a lot of these tracks. I think, there, you know, he, he isn't batting 100%. There's one track in particular where the vocals are not very good, I think. But, mm -hmm. I mean, for now, I think he was still doing pretty well. Yeah, and where they felt that I think where he felt that he wouldn't wasn't able to perform as as well. Uh, I think there's at least one track where they changed the key to yeah. a lower one. Yeah, thematically, I think this uh, album opener speaks a lot of their intention on this album. They don't want it to be a straightforward Christmas record, just based on on standard Christmas music. So th this is already veering a little bit to the side of, of what we traditionally think of as, as Christmas music. Because speaking of something else attached to, to, to Christmas, like someone having a birthday on the same day mm -hmm. and how it connects, connects with the Christmas story, but at the same time, how it is an experience a lot of kids have yeah. will be born on the, around the Christmas day. So it is an immediate statement that this Christmas album is not like the others. Mm -hmm. yeah. We're not going to be just rehashing Jingle Bells and We Wish You a Merry Christmas. We're going to say something. We're going to say something new. Yeah, and I think the fact that like there are new compositions, period, on this album is kind of a way of making that statement. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth noting, too, just like Ian's relationship with the Christian church, because, you know, he's not somebody who considers himself a practicing Christian. But, uh, you know, he's someone who has had a long relationship with the Christian church in terms of, you know, doing, uh, you know, annual Christmas concerts for a charity and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And he, I think he's always spoken about, you know, maybe this was not what the Ian Anderson of 1971 would say. But, you know, the Ian Anderson, at least of the past couple of decades, I think has been clear that he's quite positive towards the actions of, uh, you know, the Christian church, at least in terms of um, beneficiary and things like that, and is, mm -hmm. has always been supportive of that aspect of Christianity, even if he's not a practicing believer of it. And I think that's probably a lot of what he was interested in putting forth in this album. And I think he's clearly interested in Christian culture and things like that, which probably influenced some of the selections of traditional stuff uh, on this album yeah it's it's been very obvious uh, to that up to that point already that his views on religion had changed yeah. because uh, we've in 1995 he's put out divinities which is an ecumenical album which is uh, looks at different religions and the point uh well at least philosophically because there's no lyrics on that album but in terms of concept it's a look at different religions and the point where they converge. Mm -hmm. And so it com it's completely unsurprising that, that, that he's doing that. I wonder if, if on any of, this, of his Christmas gigs he performed My God. I'm not yeah. sure if he did. <laughs> I doubt it. And yeah, that's a different view. And I'm sure that well, at least a lot of, 
I don't know, English vicars will agree with the sentiment on my God. Mm -hmm. Because the Anglican Church these days is, well, not fundamentalist in the slightest. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe with Brexit and things like that, uh, there's more fundamentalism raising its head. But I'm not sure about that. Track two, Holly Herald. This is an interesting one for me uh, because unlike the other Christmas tunes that make their appearance on this album, I'm mostly unfamiliar with the two originals that they used in this one, the Holly and the Ivy, and, and even Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I may have heard that one, but I didn't really register it. Really? Because uh, both of these tunes, I listened to the originals a few times, and both of this, these tunes uh, strike me as not very memorable hmm. as Christmas carols go. I'm not sure they count as carols, but Christmas songs. However, they made them into something more recognizable, into something that has more personality to it, I feel. Which is, I think, a good result. This song has what I call, what I will call during this episode, a late tall flute solo, where everything kind of goes a little darker, and the flute veers off in, uh, in a slightly eastern-tinged improvisation. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. And other than that, contextually, there's also... This track makes sense because it precedes a Christmas song, the next track. And the Christmas song begins with a quote from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Yeah. And them making this into a complete musical piece and putting that in that order. I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this one isn't bad for me. It, you know, it's it's a Christmas melody, which typically I would think is kind of lame. But I, I think the way that they pulled this off, it's very light and bouncy. Is kind of the way that I would describe mm -hmm. this uh, song. And part of that is kind of driven by the drum part, which is equally very light and bouncy and kind of cool. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're not that familiar with "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" because that that's a huge song in America. Yeah, I'm sure it is, it, because Christmas is not very religious around here yeah and the, the religious part of Christmas doesn't really spill spill over into the secular life yeah because of, of course there there's masses in church and people go there and sing songs part of my own personal uh -huh. experience with this is that so every school I've ever been affiliated with in my life has been a Christian school uh -huh. so when I was a kid I, I went to a K through 12 private Christian school which means that it was like preschool through high school all in the same school and so during that time of life you know every single year I would have to go to Christmas concerts either because I was playing in them in a band or something or because you had to sit through it in order to get your freedom in Christmas break and that kind of thing <laughs> but so one of the results of that and plus having to go to chapel every day and that kind of thing is you know hearing lots of I guess religious Christmas music and you know Hark the Herald Angels thing was without a doubt mm -hmm. uh, you know part of that repertoire that you heard all the time yeah and they turned it into a completely different piece of music within this track because it's sped up considerably and it's just whizzes by it's like it, it's a quote of a melody but played in, in, in an entirely different manner mm. because as far as i know hog the herald angels sing is a very slow moving composition yeah you know one thing that this track made me think of so you mentioned previously about you like the mixing on this album. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, there's a big problem that I have with later Ian slash Toll stuff. 
uh-huh. and I hear it a bit on this album, and it, this track in particular made me think of it, which kind of made me write the note down. All right. I think it's not as bad on this album. It gets a lot worse with like Ian's later stuff, but I kind of hear it uh-huh. here too, which is just that the production is so dry and sterile and uh, quiet, especially if you listen to like Homo Erraticus and Thick as a Brick too. Um, it's really, really aggravating. Just you know how incredibly dry the production on those albums are, and uh, yeah, uh huh. I'm not Go saying on. that like this album is that bad, but I can hear it on some of the tracks on here, kind of starting as well. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. And compared to this album, uh, Thick as a Brick Two and Homo Eraticus, I feel they are worse. In terms of mixing and production, yeah, for sure. While here, it's it's dry, but it's not flat. Mm-hmm. In terms of this particular track, we are starting to see very different approaches that they used on this album. They are not taking the same approach to every piece of material they choose. Uh, with every piece of material, they kind of give it give it a different spin. With this one, this musical is reminiscent of like Irish folk music or Celtic folk music in a more broad term. And there's not another track here that's done in the same manner. There's a new song which has the the same feel, but that's a new one. And a rearrangement of of, of an existing Christmas piece of Christmas music in this particular style is unique to Holly Harrell. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I think it's pretty fun when, when you start noticing that, how they're taking different different approaches and different spe- spins to different tracks. I like the accordion and the bells show up on here, which is not mm-hmm. uncommon for the rest of the album. But Yeah, I keep wondering how much Andrew Giddings really hated playing the accordion, <laughs> yeah. aka the squeezy thing as Ian pointed out so many times during live performances, because there's loads of accordion on here. Track three, A Christmas Song. Once in royal David's city. So this is the first of the re-recorded Tull songs. Mm-hmm. So this, of course, was the B-side to Love Story, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, you know, post-this-was era song. Previous was, I think it's, wasn't it? So Love Story was after this was. It was. Uh, uh-huh. It was one of the last things that Mick Abrams did. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pre stand up. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm getting those mixed up. So I don't really have a lot to add on these re-recordings. I really. I mean, I don't. After listening to this album, I don't really understand the point of these re-recordings because a lot of the time, either barely anything is different or it's just a worse version. Is <laughs> kind of the way that they sound to me. Uh, I know what you mean. And I think there's definitely a few songs that I think are worse. There's one song that I think is better, mm-hmm. just one. And I feel like a lot of this, a lot of these re-recordings were done thinking about, again, radio play and using this album as a piece of public Christmas material, public Christmas music. Because if we compare these songs to the originals, the originals don't really it, it, it will be very difficult to play these uh, beautiful original recordings in the same playlist sure, yeah. as pieces of modern Christmas music because they are mixed so differently. Yeah. And if we listen to like Weathercock back to back from Christmas album and from Heavy Horses, you'd be you'd be struck by how the mix differs, how how it's a completely di- different sonic space. Mm-hmm. 
and not one that will be, like, I don't know, palatable yeah. to an average listener who doesn't know about Jethro Tull and who doesn't know these songs. Yeah. Within the context of an album, if, if you took a member of the public who is unfamiliar with Jethro Tull and played the entirety of Heavy Horses to them, they wouldn't think it would be it were so much different because this context. Mm-hmm. But if we put Weathercock between Let It Snow and Jingle Bells in a supermarket, the original Weathercock, it would be jarring. Yeah. It's not that it's not that that it's worse, but the the mixing on, on on that is so different. The drums are quieter, the vocals are in a different place, and I, I don't think it would just well to us it would be a welcome change. Yeah, but you know, I was gonna say I, I would argue that even Weathercock in this track listing is kind of jarring, but not for sound reasons. <laughs> but I'll get to that later. Okay, I don't know. I. So I mean I don't have any complaints about a Christmas song on this album. It's just it it sounds to me like the original except with new vocals is kind of all that it sounds oh, like to me. I, I do have a little a little complaint. I don't mind that it doesn't have the strings because it's quite enough for me to have the original version with the beautiful strings. But there's a vocal thing here which I feel is different and I feel is a little bit worse. Other than the context being different, because the original Christmas song is a very young person singing like they were a grumpy old man, right? And chastising the commercializing of Christmas. Well, here we have a literal grumpy old man chastising the commercializing of Christmas. And even though the phrase tacked on to the end, which first appeared, I think, uh, on Living in the Past, wasn't on the single, uh, Hey Santa, passes that bottle, will you? Oh, I didn't know that. Kind of makes light of the entire thing, that it's not to be taken too seriously. Yeah. But still, there's a little bit of charm in a young Ian Anderson being all angry and self-righteous about the Christmas spirit disappearing from Christmas. And there's not much of that left in in a more mature Ian Anderson expressing the same sentiment. Yeah. But other than the kind of the theatrical part, the conceptual part, there's something about the young Ian's vocal delivery that keeps you listening, that keeps you focused on his voice from line to line where he's not, it doesn't feel like the line is, drops when he stops singing. It feels like he keeps singing the, the, the entire song, the entire verse is one continuous line, even though it has large gaps in the middle. That, that's one of the things that Ian used to do so well, keeping you listening, keeping those little micro intonation hooks in his vocal performance that told you that the melody was not finished. And I feel like that's a little bit missing from the updated version of Christmas Song. Yeah. Like every line gets dropped just a little bit. It just whenever he stops singing, that's kind of the end. Yeah, I know what you mean. You're not hypnotized by by, by that delivery as much as as you are on the original Christmas Song, which is not by far not not one of my favorite tall tracks, but that's the way I feel about, about the new version. So I don't remember, Is there's not March Snare on the original Christmas song, was there? Uh, there was, I think. Oh, really? Okay. The, the, there's a few March Snares on the, on on this album, and I, I was taking a note of them, but there is. Okay, yeah, that was something I've noted. Mm-hmm. Track four, another Christmas song. Oh, 
Hope everybody's ringing on their own bell this fine morning. Hope everyone's connected to the It's very funny to, to put both of them next to each other because obviously another Christmas song references Christmas song in its title. A much later track from Rock Island, which we hadn't discussed yet. Yeah. This one, I believe, among the re-recorded versions, is one that was made better. Hmm. Because it, it's hardly different from the 1989 original, but it's less 80s and it doesn't have the obnoxious drum reverb on it. Not much is different. The vocals are, I feel on par, because that's already a late EN vocals on Rock Island as well. So yeah, it, it's, a very, it's a very simple song, as Tal goes. And another one in the vein of feel-good songs like Fires at Midnight. The thing that uh, this made me think of is it's very interesting how of the album tracks that were kind of resurrected for this album, it's very interesting how I feel like the style of each of those albums really comes through mm -hmm. in those songs, even though they're being recorded, you know, in a more modern context. So I think like there's very much a late 80s Rock Island style to this song, mm -hmm. which, you know, it still comes through all the way, even though they're recording it many years later. It does. And it's funny you mentioned the reverb on the drums, because I, I had a note there that, well, let me clarify first, that I haven't uh, listened to Rock Island yet, because we still have that to go, so I, I can't really compare these directly, but it sounded to me like they were almost trying to go for, like, 80s reverb on the drums on this <laughs> song, the way that they beefed them up. Yeah, well, if you compare the, the two versions, the drums on Rock Island are just outrageous. <laughs> oh boy, I, I can't wait for that then. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's much less an 80s production in the updated mm. version and compared comparing the, the two back to back i do prefer out of these two the version on christmas album the harp sound caught my ear i wasn't sure if that was a real harp or if it was a keyboard i think andrew giddings was f famous for using lots of sampling lots of samples of acoustic instruments on mm. his keyboards and that must be his doing but i don't know i mean i think a term that i used on Crest of a Nave, and that I suspect I'm going to be using a lot more in the next couple of albums, is kind of the old man hotel ballad. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what this song sounds like to me. Well, it literally has old man in the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't feel this one is much of a hotel ballad, but yeah, I, I, I can see where, where you're coming from. I like the addition of the bells in this. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bells, again, I, I'm sure sampled, lots of bells on the album, and there weren't any on the 1989 original and I feel it's pretty tasteful even yeah. on this song in particular. Track 5, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. So this is actually kind of has a long history with Tull because yes. uh, this song, which is a traditional song, was used even as far back as the 70s. Uh, I think it originated as part of Ian's flute solo, if I mm -hmm. have that correct. So uh, Ian would kind of play some measures of this as part of his sort of flute solo interlude section. And this is kind of the first time they've actually put it to recording as more of a full piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it made complete sense for them to, to, to do this track. Mm -hmm. And they made it really different. Because yeah. one of the interesting things musically about this melody is what they are doing with it. Um, the original melody, the, the Christmas Carol, is of course straight without any swing to it. It's just straight 4-4, four, four, da 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 
And when Ian was incorporating that into his flute solo, he played that in 6-8. And what they're doing here, they're not using that rhythm. They're slowing it down to half time, but they're keeping the same swing. So the swing is now 16th notes instead of 8th notes. If, if you listen to a piece of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen from Ian's flute solo and what's happening with the rhythm on this one, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean. But overall, this is kind of the Bourree approach. It's just yeah. take a tune and jazz it up, uh, turn it into, like Ian likes to say, cocktail lounge jazz. Yep, exactly. I found it very funny when I first heard him introduce that on the orchestral Jethro Tell album, Count Basie meets Tom and Jerry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but this is another different approach to a Christmas tune that they're using on this album, and there won't be another one like it. This is sort of them pretending to be a jazz band. Yeah. They're playing a swing tune, they're using little improvisations, they trade off solos and so on, and they're d doing that in what is arguably a jazz context, which it really isn't. It's just a bunch of rock musicians playing a swing tune. I, I don't think they would call themselves a jazz band when doing that. But it is a jazz approach and it is a swing piece, which makes it sound like jazz. There were a couple sonic choices on this track which kind of surprised me. Uh -huh. Which The very first one was just the marimba, which was really cool. That I, I wasn't expecting that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, so the guitar tone and the organ. I'm not going to remember the exact name of this organ sound, but it's a fairly famous organ sound. Uh -huh. And it almost kind of sounds to me like they're going for like a retro 50s, 60s sound. But that almost uh -huh. is what it sounds like. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, you could imagine a band from the 50s or 60s playing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen yeah. in a jazz way, you know, as it were. But this is one of the most background tunes to me. Hmm on the album because the the sort of swing jazz delivery makes it to me more standard the sonically than probably any other song hmm. on the Christmas album with the organ there's even parts where it sounds like the closest thing since John Evans it really sounds like a like a thick as a brick style Hammond organ tone in some mm -hmm. places yeah the sounds on on this one are great overall I was thinking what track I would mention this this on because could mention it on anyone the christmas album and rupees dance i think there was something in 2003 about i don't know the choice of microphone or preamp or recording equipment maybe not everyone will agree with me but i feel like that year was the best recorded flute in tall history <laughs> uh, just uh, not not the performance maybe th there were certainly better flute solos over over Ian's career there were certainly more meaningful flute performances but just in terms of sound and mixing the way the flute is recorded and uh, the way how it sounds very full and not buried in in the mix by maybe maybe on, on other albums it was a difficult choice when there was more um, electric guitar, which is tough to kind of marry in terms of frequencies with, with the flute, and the, so they, ha they have to compromise. But the fullness of the flute sound on this album is really, really pleasing. Mm -hmm. It's very full, it's, uh, it's full of low end, full of definition, and a really nice performance. 
technically. I'm not saying this is my favorite Tom music. I think that, that that's kind of been clear from, from the discussion up to this point. I'm just saying that the flute is recorded spectacularly. Track six, Jack Frost and the Hooded Crow. Say Jack Frost and the Hooded Crow. Well, in this one, they've unearthed an outtake. Yeah. Not a well-known Tal song. I think, I think it, a broadsword outtake, right? Yeah. Up to that point, I think it was only released on one of the anniversary albums, 20 years or 25 years, because it was released as a broadsword bonus track later. It hadn't been remixed at the time. Remastered, I mean. This one, compared to the original, I think it's listens to more smoothly. It has a comparatively kind of better flow. But if compared to the original track, it to me takes away a little bit from it. Because the original 80s Jack Frost is such a surprising song with so many surprising sounds and textures and places where you don't know where you are. Stop times and very odd rhythms on top of a 5-4 beat, which is the entire song is in 5-4. This one uh, is again it's more ready for radio play. Because you don't really, well, you notice that it's it's not in four four, but it's it doesn't distract you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the thing I thought on this one was again, it was just amazing to me how much the original album's style came through mm-hmm. in kind of this more modern take on it. I'm not that familiar with the original version of this song, but it's it's very clear to me. I mean, I can hear like the arena rock eightiesness mm-hmm. of broadsword coming through in a lot of this, even if it's you know kind of stylistically different. The arrangement choices on the original are kind of, they feel more stark, they feel more epic in a way. Yeah. I'm not sure I dig the Christmas melodies tacked on to the end. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't think that was necessary. <laughs> you know, some of the flute lines here, I'm assuming these are the flute lines in the original song, they remind me a lot of Weathercock, which is uh-huh. only two tracks later in this track listing, which is kind of funny. Yeah, I, I don't think they... They sound as similar to Weathercock on the original versions. Overall, this album makes a lot of the songs sound more similar than they are. Yeah. Because it's the same band, largely, <laughs> doing them at, at the same time in, in the same period. So in terms of production, the album is very cohesive, even though, like you say, there's lots of the original style shining through mm-hmm. different tracks. This is a song that I always hear people talking about online they kind mm-hmm. of bring this up as like a highlight of tall christmas songs and that kind of thing i can see that yeah because it's not as feel good as another christmas song and maybe not as as bitter as christmas song mm-hmm. so it, it has a true more of a true kind of christmas sentiment yeah of, of thinking about less fortunate people i like the maracas towards the end and I like how they Uh kind of get their own space (laughs) to do their own thing it kind of makes me think about I imagine this is not the case in Eastern Europe but you know in the US um, because Latin culture is so ubiquitous especially in the south kind of in Texas where I grew up Mm -hmm. um, the marriage of Christmas culture and then also uh, Latin Christmas culture so uh, Feliz Navidad Uh and uh you know, things like that is also very ubiquitous when it comes to uh, Christmas culture. And also the procession, Las Posadas, the kind of the reenactment of Mary and Joseph searching for 
home in Bethlehem and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I mean, stuff like that was, you know, that was just up there with uh, everything else when I grew up in Texas. So um, that's that's kind of a roundabout way of uh, linking the maracas to that memory, which made me think of that side of Christmas. Uh-huh. Yeah, I- I'm not sure it was the intention. They may have just picked up a piece of percussion. Oh, sure, yeah. And sticked it, sticked it on there. But yeah, I mean, ecumenical is the name of the game. <laughs> Track seven, last man of the party. So make yourselves jolly on the mistletoe holly And I be good to it and be in good cheer And when it's all over, fix on the clover So this is another new song, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a lot to add on this one, really. It, it just kind of sounds like typical tall folk mm-hmm. uh, I, you know I think it's fine but there's there's nothing about it which is I think is particularly interesting I think they're kind of going for like the tavern rock thing which is kind of cool mm-hmm. especially um, when I when I was a kid you know I associated tall with like medieval fantasy and stuff as I've mentioned so uh-huh. you know when I was a kid I loved reading like the red wall series and you know, video games like you know world of warcraft and that kind of thing and I mean, as ridiculous as it may sound for kind of older people like i associated tull with those kinds of worlds uh-huh. very closely because to me they were like a medieval rock band and that kind of thing so i kind of admire you know, this like tavern pub style uh folk which to me is kind of emblematic of what a tull take on you know the, the winter season and hearth fire and that kind of thing is kind of uh-huh. emblematic of that sort of thing yeah i know what you mean uh they Oddly enough, the album I associate with the most with video games from Tal is .com. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. This one, yeah, the, this one has a very similar vibe to Holy Herald. Both of these tracks are sort of Celtic slash medieval rhythmic feel. Uh, Last Man, more slightly more medieval than Celtic. It also reminds me a little bit, a little bit of Fat Man. Mm-hmm. It has a similar mandolin-driven, fast vocal, well, moderate sort of fast vocal delivery well i'm saying fast it's not it's not fast it's just focused on the vocal rhythm i think that's what it is other than that uh, it's another grumpy old man song i feel don't bother me with your festivities leave me alone the one part i like about it the most is actually the outro where the the guitar loop is kind of repeating over and over and it's kind of hypnotizing and cool sounding that was kind of the, the only part about it that really stuck out to me Mm-hmm. There's a couple of really nice outros on this album, I feel. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but other than it being one of the new songs on the album, I don't really feel it as a highlight. Yeah, it's pretty unremarkable for me. Mm-hmm. Track 8, Weathercock. Sing to a softly song Tell us what the blacksmith Again, re-recording a past song fitting to the theme overall and I, I think we said it about this song when we were, we were talking about heavy horses this song has a home sort of has a home theme mm. it makes you think of a house and I think that that's how it fits into the album concept but you said it was a little bit jarring in here yeah it, this was a surprising choice to me for a Christmas album mm-hmm. and so I mean the the immediate first thought I had was you know, I think I mentioned on the Heavy Horses al- episode that uh, this song is kind of linked to Fire at Midnight to me. To me, it's kind of like uh-huh. a, a separate take on a similar concept as Fire at Midnight. Uh-huh. But Fire at Midnight to me is a song that fits with the idea of Christmas a lot more. Uh-huh. And I actually, when I heard this, I looked forward in the track list and thought, oh, okay, so Fire at Midnight is here too. But, you know, Weathercock to me is kind of different because it's true that it's about a home. 
and it's about a home in winter, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of where the connection comes from. But to me, you know, Fire at Midnight is about like the coziness and the hearth fire of a home and the comfort of a home. To me, Weathercock is kind of different. You know, Weathercock is about the different edges of a home. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the Weathercock at the top, which is frozen and is having trouble moving because it's so cold outside. Or you have the roof, which needs repairs because the winter has kind of damaged it and that kind of thing. That's kind of what Weathercock makes me think about. So it, it was kind of surprising to me to see this pick as a Christmas song. Yeah, but maybe again, it's trying to to break out of the mold of a traditional Christmas theme. Mm-hmm. It's incorporating all, all those things that are part of Christmas because you need a roof, right? Yeah. Over your head to celebrate Christmas. And if there's something wrong with it, it's part of your life as well. So I don't mind weathercock appearing here i think it's not like they inserted aqualung mm-hmm. which also has a wintry theme <laughs> but a very different one that would have been jarring probably musically so i mean this is the first song on here that i'm actually sort of familiar with already you know except for the references to older christian songs or christmas songs it's kind of impressive how much the music sounds like the original here mm-hmm. but that also again that kind of makes you wonder like you know what is the point <laughs> of doing these songs the exact same way again it kind of makes me think of uh so like right now taylor swift is doing her whole thing where like she's re-recording entire albums exactly as they were mm-hmm. um you know i mean for her she's doing that for legal reasons she's doing it to try mm-hmm. to get royalties back and that kind of thing which i you know that makes sense but for these i mean i get that they're they're mixing them different and i get that you know it's they're trying to update these for a more modern audience but mm-hmm. when i hear how similar the music not the vocals but the music sounds to the original it just makes me wonder like you know It kind of gives you the same feeling as like uh, all the remakes that they're doing in Hollywood now, where they they just take the same uh-huh. movie but they do it in live action or something. Yeah, I know I know what you're saying, but at the same time, is there much to be improved to be improved upon mm-hmm. on Weathercock? There isn't, and they're acknowledging that and doing it in much much in much the same way they would they would have played it live. Yeah, right. Because if they had to perform it. In a live set, which I'm not sure they were doing at the time. Not sure this song was a popular choice in tall live sets. But that's the way they would do that, and I feel it's pretty opposite. I'm not. I'm not saying it's it's a better track. It's it's not better on the Christmas album. It's just it hasn't been made considerably worse. Yeah, well, I agree with that. And uh, I feel I feel like the acoustic guitar arrangements at the end, which is different from the original track. It, yeah, it's, it's nice and it makes sense in there. Yeah, those are the only things I noticed was the guitar, violin part at the end, and then mm-hmm. just bells throughout. Yeah, of course, of course, there's bells. You need to have bells. It's the Christmas album. Track nine, Pavane. So um, the funny thing on this one, as soon as this started, my ears immediately thought it was on further on from A. <laughs> I was thinking, what the hell is going on? Oh, really? But, um, I don't know. It. So what, I'll start off by just saying the guitar on this is quite nice. It, it reminds me a lot of mm-hmm. like Martin's uh, kind of acoustic solo stuff. Yeah. We're kind of around the same period. But uh, I don't know. This is sort of getting into like easy listening, fall asleep territory for me. <laughs> But what do you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm sure the acoustic guitar is coming from 
Martin's solo albums. It's what he was interested in, interested in doing at the time. Pretty obvious, I think. I think it's not a bad track. It, it does get into the easy listening territory. Completely agree with that. But again, I went to Foray's Pavane and listened to that. And even not counting the sort of darker part in the middle where they have this roots to branches era, Phrygian dominant Eastern thing kind of happening, mm-hmm. the original piece is based on a Spanish chord dance. It's, it's been written by, by Gabriel Foray in late 19th century. So it is not a chord dance in its own because the chord dances were several centuries ago by that time. But it's very impersonal, the Foray's piece, because the idea of the Pavane as a dance is it's a processional dance and it's used to open grand ceremonies and to display attire. People would parade in front of uh, the king and queen in their best, best clothes and salute them, all kind of well, circling around the room. And it's a dance that begins a feast or, I don't know, a court celebration. There's more medieval dances that are considerably rowdier when everyone is already drunk, even in court dance territory, sort of. But Pavane is not one of these. Pavane is one where everyone still behaves. And Foray's piece sounds just like that. It's very mellow, it's very slow-moving, a little poised, and a little boring. And I, I think what, what they did here, what Jethro Tull did, they gave it a little, a little more personality. Because they couldn't help that. It's, it's, it's what they do. Ian will perform classical piece with more syncopation than it was intended to have. Because it's the way he plays. And they inserted uh, a development in, into it that wasn't there in the or- original at all. While the original does have a slightly darker part in the middle, it's of course completely different from from what they have in this track. Yeah, if I remember right, this was um, a pretty frequent live song around this time for them. Uh-huh. Uh, I So I don't know if you've seen the 2003 Montreux live DVD. I have. But I think this was on there, could be wrong. I don't really recall, but again, it's not a track you will recall. Yeah. It's not particularly memorable. But yeah, the uh, late Tal flute solo makes an appearance here, uh, and I do enjoy that part. Yeah, this, and I don't know, it synth strings on this one too. Mm-hmm. Just uh, not very appetizing. Yeah, well, I, I don't really like sampled instruments in general, be it strings or be it uh, brass, like on Jack Frost mm-hmm. on this album. They never sound natural enough to merit more than more than a, more than a passing use, more than just a, a little bit of color. When when you lean into the, into the sampled sounds a lot, it has a, to, to me a bit of uncanny valley. Yeah, since strings have never found uh-huh. sounded good in any era, <laughs> I think it's always <laughs> the one instrument that you just shouldn't try to do. On, on the on ones that sound really synthesized that don't really pretend to be real strings and that just have the the string timbre but it's clear that it's a keyboard instrument i'm fine with uh-huh. like the old string synthesizers like german made i don't remember i don't remember the names but there, there have been a few i don't mind these and of course the mellotron strings as well because yeah it's it's clear that it's a recorded sound played on a keyboard it's not trying to pretend to be the real thing 
while 90s and early 2000s there has have been a lot of attempts to sample live instruments and make them sound like the real thing bring them as close as possible which is i don't think it's ever a good idea i don't think it's possible it's still still with even with the advancements of the virtual instruments and technologies they still have an uncanny valley feel to me yeah truck 10 first snow in brooklyn now it's the first snow in brooklyn and my cold feet are drumming you don't see me in the shadows from your coast i don't think it will feel that familiar to you like 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 you said uh, from the beginning of pavane it sounded like and further on <laughs> the first lines of first snow in brooklyn of of the song itself sound to me a lot like another harris bar oh yeah yeah i can see from that. roots to branches that's Very actually similar. a later toll song i'm actually familiar with so i can understand uh-huh. yeah so you know what i mean and there's live strings on this one <laughs> mm-hmm. unlike the other ones but i feel that the live strings on this song just give them an extra radio sheen because they are not very maybe i don't know not particularly inventive not particularly they don't bring something new to the track something unexpected they bring something that sounds like let it snow Hmm. kind of standard christmas music vibe to them i'm curious where the new york focus came from on this one Mm -hmm. well i'm sure as with uh, as with a lot of Ian's lyrics, partly personal experience, partly fantasy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he, he would have arrived to New York through JFK and mm-hmm. and gone in a taxi and all of that. Musically, uh, this is another one. It's just eh for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, I I dislike the hot rods on the drums. I I uh-huh. genuinely I generally don't think that's a great choice unless for specific uh-huh. circumstances so that makes it kind of boring for me. Also some not great lyrics I think on this one. The whole thing about I could murder coffee in a grande cup right now is kind of made <laughs> me laugh. Yeah, I feel like the all the, all the best uh, new original songs that Ian wrote at the time he put on Rupee's Dance. Mm. I did think the strings were kind of nice though. Really? I, I don't know how I feel about them. Kind of, a, this song is has, has a kind of sweet sound to it, not 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 in the good meaning of the word sweet. Mm-hmm. And the string just kind of add to it. Yeah, I wouldn't say schmalty, but they're certainly veering in in that direction. Track eleven, green sleeved. This is another traditional one, I believe. Mm-hmm. The acoustic guitar here is nice. It sounds, I don't know if it's a Spanish guitar, I could be wrong, but it kind of has like a particular sound to it. Mm-hmm. No, it's a steel string. Okay, that's what it is. Yes, yeah, so Spanish guitars have nylon strings on them and they, they have a, a less bright sound, generally. The thing this track reminds me of is actually just, so playing in jazz band in high school, and we would always have to do a Christmas concert every year, and it's, I uh-huh. kind of feel like the pieces that we played were not that far off stuff like this, kind of slightly jazzy versions of traditional Christmas songs. That's It's what it makes me think of. Yeah, however, uh, this is an in- interesting point about this song. It has a very jazz approach, but it's not jazz. It's 7-4, mm-hmm. 
The original theme is practically unrecognizable. You can hear his green sleeves, but it has a completely different flow to it, a completely different feel. Mm. And they're trading solos, they're trading their takes on the melody. But this is specific, specifically isn't jazz. If you compare it to how they did God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, they are not pretending to be a jazz band. They're a rock band doing a melody the jazz way. Mm-hmm. So it's like jazz approach, but prog folk. That's what makes it really interesting to me. I think I started noticing that because as I was listening to this album, at first, like I said, I was a little bit annoyed, probably because it was you know, listening to Christmas music ahead of time. So what I did was uh, I discussed that um, with my wife a lot. We listened to the, some, some of the tracks together and kind of bounced thoughts off of each other. And that that was her idea, that they were doing it like a jazz tune, but it's not jazz. Mm-hmm. And she would know because she studied jazz in college. <laughs> it's actually another song that kind of, it feels like, again, like there's sort of a 60s style, what they were going for in places. Mm-hmm. Probably, yes, but again, I'm not sure a lot of people would play green sleeves in 7-4 in yeah. the 60s. It's it, it's a unique thing that only Tal would do. Yeah, just in terms of the sonic choices and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Track 12, Fire at Midnight. I believe in fires at midnight When the dogs have all been fed A golden toddy on the mantle A broken gun mm. I don't think they did this song justice. Yeah, I agree. I think the updated version with the straightforward drums turns it into Christmas rock. And that's the, that's the part of the new version that I really dislike. The, the straight rhythm that comes in compared to the, the, to the original where it's much less predictable. Yeah, this is one that was quite a bit worse than the original, I think, when you kind of compare and contrast. It feels mm-hmm. very laggard in the rhythm. That's kind of how I would describe it. It feels like it's kind of struggling to keep up somehow. Interesting, even though the rhythm is simpler. Yeah, it just does, it's not carrying itself the same way. It, it just sounds sluggish to me. Mm-hmm. It's slightly saved by the new coda, the, the new ending. Yeah, the home with you repeating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that sounds very, ni- very nice. It's a new idea they added to, to, to the song and it works. I could imagine it sounding very nice in a live performance with an ending like that mm-hmm. but yeah overall the straight four on the floor or whatever maybe not four two on the floor <laughs> drum rhythm in the verse is just unnecessary yeah i don't know why Doan felt that it was it was a good idea yeah and just as an aside so the way that Doan approached a lot of different um parts was kind of interesting which you know some things he chose to play exactly as it was some things he chose to simplify some things he kind of put his own twist on and i'm talking Mm -hmm. about like just in general not just on this song so i it's i guess it was just up to him kind of how he decided to approach different things for me it would i mean i think it would feel kind of criminal for barry barlow parts not to try to to go for the whole thing you know but that's just me yeah, I know what you mean. I will say on this song that, I mean, like I said earlier, I think the theme of this song fits the cr- idea of Christmas very well, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, the piece of the hearth fire, uh, you know, in the middle of the holiday or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Thematically, it's probably one of the best songs from from the Tall Catalog to, 
to be mm-hmm. put on a Christmas album. And it's a shame that they kind of turned into into a more straightforward Christmas rock tune. Mm-hmm. Track 13, We Five Kings. So a couple of things on this one. I mean, firstly, the kind of Latin intro, it, to me, it kind of sounds like it's trying to reference living in the past, which I guess is kind of cute. Yeah, I think that's what, I think that's exactly what it tries to do. Yeah, with the little woodblock percussion sound. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how hearing this transported my mind to school Christmas concerts. Because uh-huh. I, I don't know about you, but so, I mean, We Three Kings is, uh, you know, a classic religious Christmas song. Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, and so this immediately made me think of all those times I had to sit through this song, you know, mm-hmm. waiting to go home for winter break or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, the 5-4 thing is clever, because We Three Kings isn't 3-4. Mm-hmm. And it does make sense to... It makes more sense to call it We Five Kings and play it in 5-4. Uh, and... Unlike Greensleeves, which has turned into a completely different piece of music, this one is very close to the original Three Kings melody. Yeah. And it's just the slight change in rhythm uh, doesn't turn it into a different into a d- different theme. And th- that's what I'm talking about when saying that they take a different approach every time. Uh, this is very re- recognizable as being We Three Kings, but it's slightly proggier yeah in some way and I, I i would full welcome this song playing on the radio or in the supermarket around christmas yeah i don't know alas alas it won't be there i like this one i don't have much to say about it but i don't think there's anything wrong with it it's another one that to me a lot of these traditional instrumentals they just kind of get into easy listening territory for me mm-hmm. and that's true you know i mean i like I'm, I'm not knocking it i mean by all means you know that's what christmas albums are for <laughs> is to be easy <laughs> listening you know i mean to me what it makes me think of is like to me christmas albums are the kind of thing that you put on in a little like cd boombox in the living room when you have your family reunion over christmas yeah and then nobody actually ends up listening to it because they're all in the dining room eating or whatever it's just kind of playing to nobody in the empty living room <laughs> that's what christmas albums are to me and that's that's the kind of thing that this song makes me think of that's exactly the kind of background music it would be yeah but among the the, the stack of cds that you would have at, at, at christmas this would be the best one <laughs> the one i wouldn't mind at all i would put on the green vinyl of the how the Grinch Stole Christmas soundtrack, which I actually own uh-huh. in America. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm too familiar with that one. You never watched the Grinch? I don't think I have. No. Oh my God, man! You got to look it up on YouTube. <laughs> like that's. I mean, that's like the quintessential classic Christmas thing. Like I would watch that even today. Uh huh. Like the one with with, with Jim Carrey? No, 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 no. The no. old '60s one. Forget all uh-huh. the new stuff. They. Okay. It has fantastic. Um, is it Vincent Price who did the music for that? I think it is. Uh-huh. Who did the I mean, deep voice? Show, shows what I know. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to watch that though. That's a like cultural classic for all time. Okay. <laughs> Track fourteen, ring out solstice bells. Now is the solstice of the year. When there is the clan song that you hear. Again, a song that makes sense to put 
on the Christmas album mm -hmm. to give a, a radio update because I don't think I think hardly anything changed in the arrangement compared to the version from Songs from the Wood apart from the fact that in in terms of mixing it would be more palatable to a modern listener yeah and I really really don't have much to say about this one I don't think they made it worse really because probably for one one of the reasons would be that I think this one they actually played live a number of times am I am I mistaken I don't know I, I feel like they weren't playing it at this time but I uh -huh. could be wrong yeah well not at this, not at that time but I it feels like well I may be uh, out of my depth but the way they are they are playing this song here it feels like a song that's more familiar to everyone involved in the recording mm -hmm. or maybe they, they just made made a big effort to, to just recreate it and just modernize the mixing and the overall sound. The main thing that sticks out to me on this one is mm -hmm. this is the one track on the album where the vocals are really not good, I think. Uh-huh. He's he's really going for stuff that's kind of out of his range, I think. Yeah, they should have they, they should have transposed it down like they did like they did with Jack Frost. I seem to recall so you mentioned the String Quartet's album which mm -hmm. my dad got that when it came out. I, I never really listened to it, but I, I heard bits and pieces of it and uh, I remember this song was on there and I remember it sounding very not good <laughs> on that one with the vocals. Yeah, but that, that's even later. Right. So one random thing on this one, I noticed, uh, I was listening to this on streaming, and on uh, streaming services this song is actually misspelled. Uh -huh. It's Ring Our Solstice Spells, which uh -huh. I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Do you think they don't really care about this album too much <laughs> to never fix this? Probably. I think I actually saw on Spotify, I don't use Spotify, but I, I looked it up to check and uh, the, the title of this album was just Christmas Album. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't it even the Jethro Tull. I'm just, I'm just looking, at, I'm looking at this right now. Yes, and drink our solstice bells. But I don't know. I think the vocals aren't good on this. I think the, you know, the mixing is not great. The the bells at the end don't sound very powerful. You know, in the original song, mm -hmm. the that that's like a, a very standout moment of the track, and it doesn't yeah, really sure. feel that way this sure. way. Sure, the the original track is miles better. I'm just saying that there isn't any any specific choice here that makes it outright worse other than it just being a different slightly weaker performance mm -hmm. i didn't actually listen did you catch if they did anything with the reverse hand claps on this version oh no, I, I, I don't think i took note of that I, I think it's just straight hand claps okay yeah straight this is because i think they didn't really do any studio trickery on this one it doesn't feel like there's a lot of stuff that they wanted to experiment with so like on jack frost like like here with, with the hand claps they just took the toolkit they had at the time which was a fine toolkit they were and still are incredible musicians and they put that toolkit to use um, without trying to break any new ground because because it's a Christmas album, because you're not expecting new ground on a Christmas album. That's it's not what a Christmas album is about. That a Christmas album is about familiarity and comfort. So that's I think the idea behind not doing anything special with the with the hand claps yeah. and other things. Track fifteen, Beret.
So this is another one. I don't really get the Christmas feeling here, but I guess they just put it because it was like a classic Tull easy listening piece, mm-hmm. is the way I would think. So this one is actually kind of notable, I guess. It kind of serves a, a useful purpose in like the Tull discography writ large, just because this is, I mean, this is basically just a recording of how they played it live circa like a modern yeah. Tull. So it starts with the new kind of live ending, which you mentioned uh, way back on the stand-up episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it starts with it with a quote from the original version, not jazzed up, just mm-hmm. you know, straight, which I don't really enjoy that much, but I kind of understand why they feel it's a good idea to put it in, just to reference, reference the original piece. And yeah, I just, I feel they think it has a fitting mood as a, as a Christmassy track. And one of the things I sort of like about it on this particular album is the the silly grunts that Ian is doing dur- during the solo. Yeah. All these silly noises on a, on a Christmas album. Just imagine it being played in the living room or the dining room mm-hmm. during the family gathering and Ian just going... Right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's pretty hilarious. And it makes it a better thing. The accordion's cool. Mm-hmm. And this one, I think it kind of stands out a bit. Yeah. Again, the grunts... Uh, take me back to Terry Pratchett again <laughs> to Hogfather who is in the book an, an anthropomorphic pig uh-huh. the, 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 the Santa in, in that world is an anthropomorphic pig, like a wild well not a pig, a boar, a wild boar so yeah, th- this is a Hogswatch song now I declare it to be it's definitely the least Christmas thing on the album in terms of like thematically at least yeah well does it really have a theme no. it has a mood and yeah. it's a light-hearted mood, which which sort of fits the the overall sound. The only thing I, the only last thing I have on it is just at the very end. There's, uh, so this is James Duncan on drums, and he plays a Zill mm-hmm. bell, <laughs> which uh-huh. is a, a bell that Zildjian sells. I mean, it may not even be Zildjian. I mean, I don't know what symbol brand he uses, but I had a Zill bell growing up that I bought uh, when I was actually when I was obsessed with Primus. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, it inspired me to buy a Zill bell because of all the you know little bells and splashes that someone like Tim Alexander used. So uh, uh-huh. I bought one of those. It's this very. Um, it doesn't look like a bell, but it's it's kind of like a. It maybe kind of looks like a china in a way, but it's like a small little um, bell sound when you hit it, and it sounds it's incredibly loud when you play it. It it rings forever and ever. So it was. It was actually kind Uh of too loud for me when I got it. I barely ever used it because it was so loud. But uh, I just heard that, and it it immediately made me smile to think of of someone putting in a Zill bell. I used to, uh, when my band first started in high school, whenever we would record, whenever we'd do an album, I always had, back then I had quite a big set, and so I would always try to, uh, you know, I didn't want to have all these cymbals and weird percussion of things and then not use them. So a lot of the time I would go out of my way to like play the Zill Bell just one time, one note on one song on the <laughs> album. So then I could say I actually used all of my stuff on the album. Yeah, but that's the thing about the weird, weird instruments and weird per- percussion. Maybe I don't know, weird guitar pedals as well. You don't, you don't want to use them on every track yeah. because then it just gets tiring. Right. Uh, like weird effects, like I don't know, like the talk box. Yeah. If, if, if you know what I mean on, on the guitar, you don't want that everywhere. Right. You just want a track you, that uses the talk box. Yeah. 
That, uh, I think with the Zilbel you're spot on because I just uh, opened up the Jethro Tull website, uh, the page about James Duncan, and it says that James plays Zildjian symbols. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. Because I knew that uh, <laughs> Don Perry plays Peisty, so I wasn't sure uh -huh. about James Duncan, but that's good. Because I knew it sounded familiar, so I, I think I had the right thing. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Track 16, A Winter Snowscape. Uh, this is what is, I believe, uh, an original Martin Barr composition yeah. uh, that first appeared on his solo album a few years before that, right? Oh, that I didn't know. I think it's a great track. Yeah, this this is my favorite thing on the whole album. <laughs> I really enjoy it. Uh, um, this may be preemptive because we're supposed to you know, keep the reveal until the end, but I may agree with you. <laughs> so... One of the things it reminds me of a little bit is, um, of all musicians, um, Aldimiola, who recorded, also recorded a sort of Christmas winter album called, I think, Winter Nights, with a Ukrainian musician playing the traditional Ukrainian folk instrument, the bandura. And uh, some of the guitar work in a winter snowscape kind of makes me think of Aldimiola, the, the way he builds his melodies. But it's certainly not saying that it's unoriginal or derivative. I think it's 100% Martin. Yeah, it's really characterized by like the descending, falling guitar, mm -hmm. which I really love the way that sounds. It's very apprehensive in kind of a cool way. Yeah, yeah. So um, Winter Snowscape appears on stage left, Martin Barr's album from 2003. Okay. I wonder which it was written for. Uh, I think. Uh, when I was looking things up for this episode, I think it was written for his, his solo album. Mm -hmm. And it appeared on the Christmas album as sort of courtesy. Yeah. But yeah, it's really wonderful. I think the, the flute brings out extra things in this melody. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like the, the little triangle. I'm not sure if it's a live triangle or a sampled because uh, there's... At the end of the track, when it finishes, you can hear there's also electronic percussion. Yeah, I love that. It sounds in, awesome. In the background. Yeah, it sounds great. So I'm not sure. It could be that the triangle is, is also electronic or sampled. Or what do you think? Do you, do you think it's it, it's a triangle played live? I didn't even notice the triangle, <laughs> to be honest, when I listened it, to it. It comes in, it comes in, in the middle. Hmm. Yeah, it, it just goes... You can't really imitate a triangle with your voice. Yeah, I know what you mean. You can, you, you can do a hi-hat, but... <laughs> yeah, when, when I read the title of this song, just before I listened to it, I was expecting it to be more of like an actual soundscape type track, but... Uh, uh -huh. So I was kind of surprised to see it was more of a guitar, acoustic guitar-centric one, but uh, mm -hmm. I think it's great. It actually... It, it has me wanting to check out Martin's solo stuff more, because to be honest, I've, I'm not really familiar at all with Martin's solo stuff. So I'm familiar with some and unfamiliar with others, and uh, yeah, I must say I hadn't listened to Stage Left. So I think we both should do that. Yeah. Immediately. This is another one, some of the uh, songs we've been talking about lately on other albums, where this one has an ending, uh, but it still fades out. Mm -hmm. Kind of strange. Yeah, but at, at the same time, as it fades out, it kind of strips back some layers, yeah. and you can hear the the electronic percussion and, 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 and other little things, mm -hmm. which is, I think, it's nice. Yeah, this was a top one for me. Mm -hmm. 
So as I said, you know, I was kind of expecting this to just be easy listening rehashes <laughs> through the whole album. Uh-huh. And I think there actually, I mean, I think there is a lot of that on the album, honestly, but there were parts of it that were more interesting than I was expecting. So mostly kind of the, the, the very beginning and the very end, but uh, still, uh-huh. um, I'm probably never going to listen to this album again, but, but uh, there were still parts of it that kind of surprised me. Even during Christmas, you won't put it on. No, I'm not a Christmas person. <laughs> I don't do that. I just yeah, do Halloween. The, the, yeah, well, if your Japanese friends you know, subject you to a Christmas celebration, you yeah, might get be. back at them. <laughs> by playing Jethro Tull. No, I think, yeah, uh, what it represents is a band trying to do a Christmas album in the way that no one else can. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a uniquely Jethro Tull thing. It's, uh, as I think, the name of it, it's very simple. It's, uh, you would, one would say primitive. But if you think about it, it's exactly what it is. It's uniquely what it is. It, 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 if you think about the name, it means this is a Christmas album that only Jethro Tull could make. Mm-hmm. Like a few, a few new new songs, a few old songs, a few completely unique spins on Christmas carols and traditional Christmas music, all put together, all sounding very cohesive, done by incredibly professional and talented musicians. And yeah, it's not it's not really inventive. It doesn't break new ground because a Christmas album is not should not be breaking new ground christmas music is comfort food mm-hmm. and this is sort of gourmet comfort food if, if, if such a thing exists i think yeah to each his own it's like i remember that our colleagues the moms like their gastronomical metaphors yeah uh, so this is like this is like mac and cheese with blue cheese <laughs> <laughs> It's, I know there's plenty of people in the world who, you know, they're thrilled about Christmas and as soon as it turns December or after Thanksgiving, they immediately turn on all the Spotify playlists. I can't even imagine the billions of dollars of revenue that those playlists generate every year. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, if you like Tull and you're into Christmas stuff, then by all means, just I, I don't really get the point of the re-recorded Tull songs and that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because I'm a hardcore Tull fan, but to me it's just like, you know, just just play the originals you know <laughs> yeah because um there is music that i associate with uh, with new year and christmas and uh one of the things i discovered recently uh i think last year or the year before was one of the best bands and albums that really fits the sort of new year mood for me was uh, a few early albums by yes like fragile or even close to the edge because yes is a very uplifting band a very major key sort of music and it fits what i expect christmas music to be interesting christmas music to be uh, a little bit more than the jethro the jethro talk christmas album mm. do you have uh, favorite tracks and bottom tracks you could pick out yeah i think uh, my favorite track would definitely be a winter snowscape yeah i agree it's a wonderful piece of music um, I'm not sure I have another really favorite track on this one. And bottom track, I I would say Last Man at the Party, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Winter's, I'm the same as you. Winter Snowscape is the standout by far. And it, I, I made myself pick two others that I thought were the most interesting, and that was Birthday okay. Card at Christmas and Holly Herald. 
Uh-huh. Um, and for bottom, I really I didn't pick any specific tracks as bottom because I mean there's nothing on here that's like offensive to me. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, I just kind of said like most of the re-recorded Tull songs and the easy listening traditional songs, uh-huh. not because I think they're bad for the most part, but just because they just don't offer anything to me. They're just kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know what you mean. Oh, so Eugene, how are you going to be spending Christmas this year? Well, like I said, it's New Year right. rather than Christmas. I think um, I don't know. Same same way as always. Have friends around, play some music, hang out together. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, one of, one of the things we do uh, on the New Year's Eve. Uh, well, not, not not the New Year's Eve because New Year's Eve is everyone's running around <laughs> uh, in preparation, but. On the, Sort of, it's not even the night of the new year, but several several nights afterwards, because everyone's everyone's on a vacation, everyone's up very late, so we have friends around and we play mahjong. It's kind of a oh, really our our personal tradition, like the the, the proper Chinese um, mahjong, not the solitaire computer game version. Yeah, because it's a game that takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can whip out for an evening and 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 be done. It it takes ages to play, and we're not we're not super fast players like some Chinese people I saw on YouTube are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we do it over hours and hours, and se- it's a complete a complete game of mahjong takes several evenings to complete. Wow. Yeah, I know mahjong and shogi are very big in Japan. They they always air like national tournaments and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be flying back to the U.S. Um, to see parents over Christmas. So, I mean, for me, Christmas now is kind of the time where I'm able to go back home and just kind of chill out for a while and not have to worry about a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. It's a little sad because uh, Christmas for us used to be a much bigger affair, just in the sense that uh, back when my grandparents were alive, kind of family would fly in and stuff, and it would be a much bigger thing. But now it's really just me and my two parents it's kind of sad <laughs> kind of what it's become yeah but uh that's kind of how we're living now so yeah, at least you can you can get back yeah is it going to be difficult to get back into japan oh it's a whole ordeal and it's so i mean this is a long story but uh, i went back to the u.s in march and the only you know i figured by the time i come back in december like you know this process will be so much smoother but the truth of the matter is the only thing that's different is that my quarantine is four days shorter when I come back to Japan, but everything else uh-huh. still applies despite vaccination and all that kind of thing. So you have to get tested in Japan before you leave. Then uh-huh. uh, you have to get tested in America before you go back. You have to get tested again as soon as you land. You have to quarantine for 14 days or 10 days. You have to get you have to get a third test in Japan on your 10th day. It's uh-huh. The whole thing is ridiculous, but... You know, it's all the stuff you got to go through now. You got to wear a mask for 13 hours on the plane, which gets so claustrophobic. So I hope this stuff is all over soon. Yeah, well, we can but hope. And on on that hopeful note, (laughs) we wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, even though it's still a few days before Christmas when this episode goes out, isn't it? Yeah, so I think we'll be 10 days before, but... uh, Mm -hmm. Let us know how you're spending Christmas. Are you going to play this album for Christmas? <laughs> Let us know if this is the thing you play. Um, let me know if I was too harsh on this album. And uh, we'll be back to our regular schedule with Rock Island in two weeks. Yeah, see you. Cheers. Thanks.